Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining podcasts. Do you like to listen? Hi, this is Dad. And this is Mom. And, and we're, we're executive producers of the History Goes Bump podcast. Did you hear that? I'm sure it was nothing. If you'd like to support the show, check out the Support the Show tab. Dave, did you hear that? And just finish this part so we can get out of here. Check out the tab at historygoesbump.com. Let's get out of here. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 182nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. We have Denise back in the studio. It's so good to have you back. I felt so lonely last time. Well, thank you so much. I was off traversing the world. Well, and you had a wonderful time. I was telling everybody what you were doing over in Ireland and Looking forward to going there to check it out and see everything there. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait. Just what little I, I had a chance to see in my short trip there, there is going to be amazing adventures when we get to go. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful country, even though it's pretty cold in February and the people were amazing. I loved the Irish people. Well, very cool. And Denise brought me back a fabulous souvenir. I put a picture up on Instagram, also over in the Spooktacular crew. It's this book called Haunted Ireland, and it's got all these haunted locations in it. It has the stories and just beautiful photography and some of the historical photographs. It's fabulous. And of course, Lep Castle, which we've done, is in here. And also last episode, which was Loftus Hall. And I was kind of confused about a couple of things. So I read what they had in this book and I wanted to clear up a couple of things because I'd seen in a few places that Charles Tottenham Loftus was just called Charles Tottenham. And I was like, okay, I've seen his name where it's got Loftus at the end. He's got to be a Loftus because somehow he's inherited this property. Here's how this book puts it. Apparently, Charles Tottenham married the Viscount Loftus's daughter, whose name was also Anne, which was going to be their daughter's name as well. So he was Tottenham, and he married into the Loftus family. And then when Anne Loftus died, he inherited as her husband. So that's how he ends up having this property. He wasn't actually a Loftus himself. So I just wanted to clear that up. And then the other thing I wanted to let people know I had said that there was this Father Broders who had been brought in to exercise the house and that they would put this epitaph on his tombstone. Well, apparently that is not on his tombstone. 
It says in here, in reality, his gravestone, a raised granite slab near the center of the graveyard, is inscribed with the barely legible record of his death. Reverend Thomas Broders, January 18th, 1773. So it's a really cool legend, and it was a neat rhyme that he had exercised the hall, but apparently that is not on his tombstone. So just wanted to clear up those two things. On this episode, we're going to be talking about a couple of universities in Denton, Texas, the University of North Texas and Texas Women's University. We're going to be joined by our listener, Ellen Girdwood, in a little bit, and she's going to share the hauntings that are going on on both of these campuses. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Amanda. Hey, Amanda. And Kate. Hello, Kate. And now, this moment in oddity. Hobos first appeared in America after the end of the Civil War. Young people may not know what or who a hobo is, but for many of us older people, the hobo was a favorite Halloween costume. It may have been a politically incorrect costume, but it was a throwback to a time when homeless men followed the train tracks across America looking for work. Many wore ragged clothes and slung a pack over their shoulder with all their earthly belongings. It is said, a hobo wanders and works, a tramp wanders and dreams, and a bum neither wanders or works. By 1911, it was estimated there were 700,000 hobos in America. Many Americans took pity on these men and helped them along the way. One of those people was my very own great-grandmother. She participated in a network that used hobo marks. Hobo marks were symbols made on homes in either charcoal or chalk to indicate that this home was welcoming. Different symbols would relate that this place will give food for work, or there's a doctor here, or there is a kind woman living here, or you can sleep in the barn here, or there's a good chance of getting money here. Some marks signaled negative experiences as well, such as, this man is dishonest, or nothing doing here. Most homeowners probably had no idea what the symbol on their home meant, but it is a unique piece in America's history, and certainly is odd. And now, This Month in History. In the month of February, on the 15th day in 1933, an assassination attempt on newly elected U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt was thwarted, but the mayor of Chicago was killed. The assassination attempt occurred in Miami, Florida. The gunman was Italian immigrant Giuseppe Zangara. President Roosevelt was giving an impromptu speech that night from the back of an open car at the Bayfront Park area. Zangara was armed with a 32 caliber U.S. Revolver Company pistol. He fired off a shot, grabbing the attention of the crowd gathered for the speech. Several people grabbed him as he fired off four more shots. Five people were hit, including Chicago Mayor Anton Cermak, who was standing next to FDR. Roosevelt cradled the mortally wounded mayor as the car sped to the hospital. He told the president, I'm glad it was me instead of you. 
That statement was engraved on Cermak's tombstone. Zangara was arrested and he confessed. He pled guilty to four counts of attempted murder. After Cermak died, he pleaded guilty of murder. He was sentenced to death and met that fate in the electric chair on March 20th, 1933. Denton, Texas is home to two universities that date back for decades. Both universities have undergone several name changes over the years. Today, they are known as the University of North Texas and Texas Women's University. The former had its start as a private teacher's college and the latter as a girls' industrial school. Over the years, suicides and tragic circumstances have led to hauntings in several buildings on both campuses. Join us and our listener, Ellen Girdwood, as we share the history and hauntings of UNT and TWU. Well, we want to thank you for joining us today. And I thought we could start off by you sharing with everybody, obviously, since you're listening to a haunted history podcast, (laughs) you must be a little bit interested in ghosts. So what got you interested in the paranormal? Well, for me, it all started when I read a lot when I was a kid. I was mainly interested in the history of everything. And then I hear that there's ghosts involved. I'm going like, what? There's really ghosts tied to it? I think it adds to the allure of the history. It makes history much more interesting to me, I know. Oh, especially when there's like a headless ghost, like Anne Boleyn, she's screaming down the hall, hey, I would do the same thing if my husband's going to chop my head off. <laughs> I, I would totally start screaming. I don't really want to see a ghost, to be honest with you. I'm with Denise. I would not want to tempt one. I don't really want to see one. I would go to the site, yeah, just to see the history, but I do not want to see one. I will start screaming, and just run. I'm just a little scared of cat. Well, obviously you haven't seen a full-bodied apparition, but have you had any kind of an unusual experience that you would think might have been paranormal? I would sometimes get chills. Like, I would go like, is there something behind me? Or, But I try and say, there's nothing there. There's nothing behind me. I think everyone gets a chilly feeling when they're in an old building, and you try and ride it off. I don't think I've ever gotten the tap on the shoulder or my hair being pulled. I don't think anything like that. On this episode, we're going to talk about two universities that are in Mm -hmm. Denton, Texas, the University of Northern Texas and Texas Women's University. I was a student at Texas Women's University. I was there from 2011 until December of 2014, and I have been on the UNT campus. I've had some friends over there, and I attended a game over there. A man from Kentucky named William S. Peters came to the area of modern-day Denton in northern Texas, and he obtained a land grant from the Texas Congress in the mid-1800s. He called the plot of land Peters Colony after himself. The Texas legislature later voted in 1846 to form Denton County, where Peters Colony had been. The county and town were named Denton after a preacher and lawyer named John B. Denton, who was killed in 1841 during a skirmish with the Kachai people. The city was laid out in 1857, and it was incorporated in 1866. Well, let me ask you a little bit about Denton, Texas, because I'd never heard of it before. What kind of a town is this? Is it a bigger one, smaller one? Is it basically a university town? 
It is basically a university town. From what I gathered, Texas Women's University, I believe, mainly started Denton. It's just a walk away from Texas Women's University. Like you go down University Street and it's small shops. There's a courthouse in the main square. It's still standing there to this day and just little mom and pop shops. It's completely adorable. I would go there sometimes on the weekends just to clear my head. And there's actually this one candy shop that Atomic Candy, I would go there on occasion and they sell antique candies like baking candy or just those old fashioned candies that you would Mm -hmm. have as a kid. Sure. And also there was this building that was an opera house, actually way back, way back in the 1900s. And there's books like in the basement area. It was an amazing place just called the Opera House. The city became an agricultural center and the Texas and Pacific Railway arrived in 1881. This brought an influx of people to the area. And with that came the need for centers of education. In 1890, the North Texas Normal College was established it would later become the University of North Texas. In 1903, the Girls Industrial College was founded. It is now Texas Women's University. My impression when I was looking at some of the stuff when it came to Texas Women's University is when it got started, you know, they talked about it being an industrial college for girls. Mm -hmm. So you're thinking industrial, does that mean like engineering or something? But it sounds more like (laughs) they were kind of teaching them how to be good wives. Am I getting the right Mm -hmm. feeling here? Yes, it was. I believe it was mainly to have the women be higher educationalized, but not too educational. (laughs) Like, and they had English and science. They offered practical training like sanitation, science, cooking, sewing, and hygiene. I don't know how sanitation and hygiene go in there. Mm -hmm. Domestic arts of laundry and housekeeping, it's a given. Commercial arts department, bookkeeping, political economy, stenography, and industrial arts, dressmaking, illustration, design, modeling, carving, and engraving, dairying, poultry keeping, beekeeping. And then for the first few years, they had a nursing program, Care of the Sick and Cultured. And that's um, the main program that Texas Women's is known for. They have a adjacent hospital in Dallas and I believe Houston. Gotcha. So it kind of moved from being more of the being a really good domestic housekeeper to, well, let's get into some nursing and that kind of thing. (laughs) Yeah, we need more nurses. It's changed a lot since being an all women's college. Well, they even have men that can attend there now. Not a whole lot, but they do have some, don't they? It actually only started in 1972. It began accepting men into the health sciences graduate school. And then finally, in 1994, it opened all its programs to qualified men. And even now, it's 90% female population. We have a running joke that all of the men, you only see them in either classes or at the gym. There's an on-campus gym, mainly you would see the guys there. And actually, fun fact, Texas Women's University is adjacent to Texas A&M. A&M was an all-males college. Texas Women's is a female's college, so occasionally they would A&M would travel to Texas Women's, Texas Women's to A&M. That's why their colors are similar. Our colors are maroon and white. A&M is maroon and white. It's a win-win for both colleges. Sure. Kind of, hey, let's have a dance. You guys come over here, then we'll host you the next time. Well, you know, I was thinking, too, when you were talking about the guys, it's so funny that you said mainly you see them at the gym. 
I was like, you know, yeah. these aren't really <laughs> stupid guys. They're like, hmm, I'd be really outnumbered here. Good place to go. Can you describe the campus a little bit? Is it Does it have a lot of buildings there? How old are they? The oldest building is actually the building that I mainly was in, the old main building. Okay. It was the only building on campus at the time. And it seems like everything is on a hill. All the buildings are close together. I lived on apartments kind of a little bit away from the building so I could take my bike and just ride from one building to the other. It was relatively close and it's way different than it is on the UNT campus. UNT is basically flat plain. It was all streets, but TW, it's kind of like a small town on a hill. That's the best way to describe it. Apparently, this campus has more than just a lot of women there. There are a lot of (laughs) ghosts there. Yes, I had to dig really deep in order to find these ghosts. I had to go down a very deep well. Well, I'm not surprised that you did because when I first started looking at it, I was like, I can't find anything here. Actually, I had to contact the TW archive ladies and I believe I sent the file to you and they gave me all of these clippings. And I found a lot of information on these old buildings. One of them that really intrigues me, because it sounds really cute and neat, is the chapel in the woods. Yes, it's very, very cute. How do I describe it? It's next to the two dorms. There's two towers. We call them the twin towers because you can see them as you're entering Denton. Okay. Gwen and Stark. And it's a quaint little chapel, and there's like a little bit of woods. It's mainly used for weddings and quinceaneras. And we have a woman in white there. You've got to have one in every location, it seems like. So perfect. And it seems to be the typical one from what I could find. She apparently was a jilted bride. And I have here in my notes that her husband left her right there before the wedding with her little sister. And supposedly she shot herself right in front of the whole wedding party and assembled guests. She appears at weddings that take place to warn brides of impending divorce and heartbreak. She also had a thing where the pews are supposed to be. Supposedly, she gets really angry if they're taken out or altered in any way. She seems like one of those old-fashioned bridezillas, if you ask me. (laughs) She's like, don't rearrange stuff. And I know if this guy's a jerk, so I'm letting you know. (laughs) Especially if he ran off with my little sister. Yeah, I just, I, I can't even imagine. And then how horrible for the family to witness her commit suicide. Very old story, going back to when... I believe, when that chapel was erected. And of course, you know, we don't have any newspaper clippings that say for sure that this actually Mm -hmm. happened. So it's, as we find in a lot of these places, another legend. But if people are seeing a woman walking around in a wedding dress, it makes sense that it would be (laughs) a woman who got jilted at the altar and decided to kill herself. Now, you talked about these two twin towers, Gwyn and Stark. Stark. Now, these mm-hmm. are, I think I'd read that Gwyn is, it's the tallest building in the city. Yes, ma'am. And that's where the freshmen and the sophomores are housed. Okay. So and this is they, kind of a, you're required to stay on campus and this is where we put you. Mm-hmm. From what I remember, the juniors are in the new apartments that are just a little ways from the towers. So are both Gwyn and Stark haunted or is it just Gwyn? From what I could tell, it's just Gwen. The rumor is it's haunted by 
Professor Gwynn himself. He was a former TW professor, a president of the Texas Women's University from September 1st, that actual date, 1950, until 1976. That was when he was in office, and supposedly he loved the building so much that he stuck around. I don't know why you would stay in the dorm. Well, he could I be a dirty old man. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I have never thought of that. There's actually a, supposedly another ghost. I heard this offhand. Uh, one of our substitutes knew this girl, but I could not find the clippings. The Gwen Tower, it's about maybe, I, I need to remember, like 20 stories tall, something like that, or a little bit shorter. There was a student there in the early 2000s that was depressed. It was, um, she was not doing well in school. There's balconies on both towers. There's balconies that you can look out. Okay. And she threw herself off of, I believe, the ninth or 10th story to the concrete below. Mm. Like she jumped off the building and that whole floor is haunted. I don't know if this is true. Mm -hmm. I could not, I, it's secondhand source. Now, I don't know if you know this is true, but is it just the balconies on whichever floor that she might have jumped from that are closed or have they closed all of the balconies um, they, Here's what's strange. They closed all of the balconies only on Gwen Hall. Stark, I've seen banners from the sororities. They are hung on the balconies. It's strange. You cannot get on the balconies at Gwen Hall. That seems to lend uh, some credence to the story that something happened then because why would they close them off on one tower and not the other? Yeah, and it almost makes you wonder, because it's like, if you're going to throw yourself from one building, why wouldn't you do it from the other two? So, I don't know. It's Are they afraid that maybe something might push them? I don't know. That just seems weird. <laughs> you only do it for one, like you're not going to climb up the other one and do the same thing? Yeah. You said that Old Main is the oldest building on campus. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. It's a very cool building. Now, this one, it, it, apparently people who go to this university like to throw themselves off of buildings. This one has a story to go with it that's the same kind of thing, oh. right? Well, it wasn't off of the balcony, actually. With this particular building, it's very interesting. There's these archways in the very front of the building. Like, you can get into the building on either side, but if you want to get in the building, you go in the front. You go up these steps, and there's... Actually, this bizarre statue, it's headless, armless, winged person. It's, <laughs> okay. it's it's weird. Then you go in the building, and when you immediately look up, there's a circular hole that is in the middle of, it's four stories, and there's a hole in the middle two floors, so you can immediately look down onto the ground floor below from the fourth story. Okay. Do you mind if I actually read the story that no, go right ahead. supposedly happened? This is from the Lasso in October 30th, 2003. Spinning in circles, the professor admired the pale pink gown as its ruffles swirled around the matching pale pink high humps. He jerked to abrupt stop when two pairs of shoe-clad feet walked into view. The enchanting ballroom gown, the professor looked fruitlessly around the classroom for a place to hide. Oh my, what are you wearing? Asked one colleague whose upper lip curled in disgust. We came to congratulate you on your promotion to dean, said the second promotion-hungry colleague with a gleam in his eye. But I can guarantee that won't be happening now. Please don't tell anyone about this, said the professor nervously as he grabbed the pink purse off the, a nearby desk. I am begging you not to tell anyone about my beautiful gown. He 
<laughs> he covered his face with the purse. Clutched in the professor's large hands, the purse looked childlike and small. It was barely large enough to hide his mustache and big nose. <laughs> the two <laughs> colleagues quickly turned and walked away. Faced with being shunned by his colleagues, the professor hung himself on the balustrade in the university's oldest building. The next morning, the dead body of this favored professor in his favorite pink dress greeted horrified students and professors as they entered the building. It is said during final exams, he still haunts students and faculty by staring accusedly or spinning in circles to watch his favorite dress swirl. Wow. I, I mean, I feel bad that the guy was treated <laughs> that way, but wow. Pink dress, pink purse, and mustache. And this was in 1920. I'm just like... Oh, wow. Yeah. And actually, this is one version of the story. The other version is that he was denied the promotion and he just went crazy and then he hung himself. Okay. So we apparently have a mad professor who's either a cross-dresser or insane. Which one are we going to believe? I can't imagine the students coming in for classes and being like... Because that would have been right in the center of the building, right? Yes, it it would be. As you're looking up, you would see just a pink gown. And then whichever floor he hung himself, you would probably get sections of his body as you're walking up each floor. Like you would see the bottom half, then the middle, the top, and then the rope. Oh, dear Lord, I sound morbid. <laughs> <laughs> I sound so morbid right now. Well, what would be interesting is to find somebody who had seen the full-bodied apparition and asking them, well, it, what's he wearing? If he's wearing the gown, I think we have the answer to he was cross-dressed and had hung himself mm-hmm. in this dress. How dangerous of him, if you're thinking back in the 1920s, to take that kind of chance right there on campus rather than you mm-hmm. know doing it at home where nobody's going to see you. I would just feel bad for the guy because I believe it was outlawed to be a cross-dresser. Yeah, I mean, I guess there was a time when it would have been a little bit better for men to have done it. And then we hit a period in history where it's not okay and then it's okay again. But ball gown, I don't think that was in style in 1920s. Wouldn't it be a flapper dress? You know what? You're right. So why ball gown? (laughs) There are other residence halls that are haunted. It seems like almost everyone has its own haunting. There's Stoddard Um, Hall. What is this one? Stoddard Hall, it used to be a residence hall. It's now, I believe, a set of classrooms. It's from what I remember, it's across the street from the campus lunch hall where we get lunch. It said that during the 1950s, a student committed suicide in a room. It said that building has cold spots and the floors creak. I would think that would be typical mm-hmm. of any building that the floors creak in. There's cold spots. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of. It a... seems like every building has cold spots. <laughs> yeah, it's a little drafty. They're old buildings, exactly. There is another building, Smith and Carroll. People have seen lights through the windows, even though the building is locked up and unused. There's another building that's just down actually the hill from the old main building. It's called the Art Building. It was built in 1996. People have seen a face in the window late at night. And then there's a library that is on campus. And supposedly, 1990s, a student disappeared and is encased in one of the white columns. (laughs) Oh, no. So this is like they were building it and he accidentally was in the wrong place at the wrong time? I don't know. That is an interesting story. It's like, how did he get encased in a column? Someone could have murdered somebody and just encased him in the concrete. But again, there's really no story with this. 
Yeah, that almost sounds more like a legend because obviously if they're saying that there's a body that was encased in a column, I would Mm -hmm. think that they would have taken the column apart and found bones or something. Yeah. They used to do this for good luck. Maybe they just took a student and said, hey, we want some good (laughs) luck for the building and stuck them there and said, here you go. Put some concrete over them. There's actually a story at TWU that is actually documented. Summer of 1948, Virginia Carpenter took a cab to our dorm at Brackenridge Hall, and she actually disappeared. There's a police report that girl, she was last seen going out of a cab, and she disappeared. There's no trace of her. They have her name. They know what she was wearing, what she looked like, but no one knows where she is. So did the cab driver, had he dropped her off or he was going to be dropping Um, her off and she just wasn't in the car anymore? She actually was dropped off. There are, there's a police report that he was questioned that yes, he did drop her off at that hall and he was actually questioned. He was a suspect of -hmm. that case and he had priors like minor offenses And they questioned the boyfriend, they questioned everyone, but she vanished in thin air. She was nowhere on campus. Wow, so it's just an unsolved mystery then. On September 16th, 1890, Joshua C. Chilton established the Texas Normal College and Teacher Training Institute with 70 students, and he said of the school, It will be our aim to become leaders in the education of the young men and women of Texas fitting them to credibly fill the most important positions in business and professional circles. We desire the cooperation of all who believe in higher education and who want to see our state in the very front of intellectual as well as material progress. The school was opened in a rented space above a hardware store. The first building was finished in 1891 and was called the Normal Building. A fence encircled it to keep out livestock, so that is how rural the location was at the time. Boarding houses around the college were used to house students. Such auspicious beginnings, a rented space above a hardware store. (laughs) No kidding, all the way to like a university. The university was founded as a non-sectarian co-educational private teacher's college. In 1901, it began to receive funding from the state and was no longer private. The University of North Texas has undergone six name changes before becoming UNT in 1988. Those names were Texas Normal College and Teacher Training Institute. That was from 1890 to 1894. North Texas Normal College, 1894 to 1901. North Texas State Normal College, 1901 to 1923. North Texas State Teachers College from 1923 to 1949. North Texas State College from 1949 to 1961. And then North Texas State University from 1961 to 1988. They just could not decide what to call this place. No, and after 1923, they decide you didn't have to be normal to go there anymore either. I know. I'm <laughs> like, what's with the term normal? I mean, what does it mean that it's a normal college? It's so, not abnormal? So anybody who started in 1923 <laughs> or later were the abnormal students. That makes me think of the movie Young Frankenstein, which I absolutely adore. And he gets the wrong brain and it's from Abby Normal, he thinks. Oh, that that's true. Yep. <laughs> UNT has been known for its diversity. It broke down barriers by admitting women from day one. It was also one of the first universities to desegregate. The school established the first jazz studies program. In the 1920s, Saturday night stage shows debuted. These were directed by Fezzer Floyd Graham and featured his Aces of College Land Band. 
The music program became quite famous at this time due to those shows and radio broadcasts. UNT also became one of the first universities to offer adult education programs, and these master's programs helped push forward faculty research. During World War II, the campus served as a place for the military to conduct exercises. The 1950s would see the first African-American student enroll and doctorate programs were begun. The university has continued to expand and grow through the years. Well, you know, Diane, with all of that, you would think that it would be much more well-known than it actually is. You would, because it looks like it was the first for a lot of stuff, especially considering that Texas is south. So it's pretty interesting that they would be so open to women and African-American students and such. What would you like to know about UNT? Now, I'm assuming this is a little bit of a bigger university. It is. It's more like a city compared to TWU. It's enormous. So it sounds like they did a lot of teacher education here. Mm-hmm. It is teacher-related, and there's also a really good music program. They also have a fashion design program there. It's more exclusive, and it's harder to get into than Texas Women's University. So you have a lot of stories for this one as well. Yes, I was surprised about that. And this is my personal opinion. TWU is... They like to keep the integrity of the school, and I understand that. They sure. want they want to keep it more inclusive. They want to focus on their programs. UNT, they embrace this. They, <laughs> Good for they them. just embrace the crazy of this, and especially Bryce Hall. There's a lot that goes on. And actually, fun fact, celebrities Nora Jones and Meatloaf were rumored to have lived there when they went to UNT. Okay. So actually it was an all-female dorm when it first opened in 1949 and it's the oldest resident building. It's um, actually the prime location I've seen it. It's like in the main hubbub and it's better dorm rooms and they have a cafeteria and it's close to the music building. And um, she would have to be known as a Bryce Lynx. It is the oldest dorm and they have a main ghost and her name is Wanda. And she said to haunt the pool hall, the attic, and the fourth floor D hall. And it's said that in the 1950s, she attended school and got pregnant at a wedlock. She had died in the attic, either to an abortion gone wrong, or she got locked in during a suicide attempt. So somebody thought no one's using the attic, so we better lock it up. Not bother to check if there's anyone in the room. And she's known to pull pranks. She's supposedly a friendly ghost, but scares people by slamming doors and turning on the showers. You know what I always find fascinating? Whenever we hear about ghosts that haunt residence halls, Mm -hmm. that form of haunting seems to happen at all of them, where they turn the water on and off. Makes you wonder why that is, why they're so fascinated with the water. The only thing I can think of is, you know, sometimes we talk about how water's a conductor of electricity, and it seems Mm -hmm. like... You have a lot of ghostly activity around a lot of water. So I don't know if Mm -hmm. that's part of their, like a power surge or something. Apparently they have an elevator that is haunted as well. The legend says that three students died when the cab plummeted from the top floor to the basement where they haunt the building. But the story is not true. Obviously, there's no no report on that malfunction, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't stop people from telling the story. I could only find one account that the elevator was supposedly haunted, 
there was an eyewitness account of encountering an apparition of an elderly elevator repairman who said he was going to fix the elevator when told it has not worked in 30 years, said it was a mistake, and walked down the hall around the corner. The witness followed the man. When he caught up to the man, he seemed to have vanished. That was the only main account that I could find about that elevator. And then the one in the basement, there's a boiler room ghost. And no one knows who this person is, but this person likes to open the heavy metal industrial doors before they are closed. So he loves to open those doors. Wow, that's interesting because they're heavy and metallic. So that would take some yeah. effort for an apparition, particularly you would think that it would have to be full bodied mm-hmm. in order to be pushing those doors. They attach this goes to the elevator. The reason why that place is haunted. You know, what's interesting is mm-hmm. you said that there was an elderly repairman who said he was going to mm-hmm. work on the elevator. And generally yeah. we would understand them to be people who would be down in the boiler room quite a bit. So mm-hmm. I wonder if this is somebody who'd had an accident down there and he just haunts right. all these different areas where he would have been maybe working at one time. That could be a possibility. No documentation that somebody died down there. I guess the only thing that would make me think that that one may not necessarily have as much documentation as boiler explosions seem to happen quite frequently. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) that one would be a little bit more believable that they wouldn't have a documented report rather than, Mm -hmm. like you said, three students plummeting in the elevator cab, I would think would Mm -hmm. make news. The next hall is Charlton Hall. And I found this when looking at the Bryce Hall. There's a statue of a guy from the torso up called The Student that was found in the foundation that they put on display, and that's where the haunting started. Supposedly, it gets more haunted in October. The story is that in the early years of the university, when Charlton used to be in all men's dorms, now it's an administration building, there was a guy that jumped out one of the windows and killed himself. And there was only one documented experience I could find, She saw a student walking down the aisles of one of the classrooms where there was not a class scheduled that day, and it was after hours. The doors have alarms and locks that only open when an employee punches in the disarming codes, and when she opened the door, the student was not there. What's interesting is you said that there was a statue that they found in the foundation? Yes, and there's a picture, I believe. It was from the torso up. Isn't that weird? It's like, why would have that been in the foundation? Well, maybe someone lost it. (laughs) Yeah, I guess. I'm like, uh, I don't know. Maybe they needed some more stones and they're like, take that (laughs) statue and throw it in there. I I mean, golly. But the hauntings suddenly start when they dug up that thing and gets more active in October. Interesting. Mm -hmm. There's actually a ghost here, too, that Denise would have liked. The health center... The campus police are constantly called to the building in regards to sightings of a young man with blonde hair who wears blue jeans and no shirt. Some people link this to the unearthing of the student statue. Huh. I wonder why they link the two things, but here we have somebody who at least is wearing jeans. (laughs) And no shirt. Well, I wonder if he was wearing bell-bottom jeans. It doesn't say what kind of Mm. jeans he was wearing. It would be interesting to know that. And actually, we have a building here that is supposedly worse than Alcatraz and the Lizzie Borden house. And it's, I'm rolling my eyes here, called the most haunted building in America. We've heard that before, haven't we? Yeah, yeah, we've only heard that a few times. So um, (laughs) 
Yeah, this must have some major stuff going on, though, if it's more haunted than the Lizzie Borden house. He looked into the history and concluded that the library was built on Romanian gypsy burial ground, which is traditionally 23 times more spiritually active than Indian burial ground. Hmm. How do they figure out that Romanian? <laughs> How do they rate that? <laughs> I I don't know. Like I heard most of the podcast that it's Indian burial ground. I hear that more than gypsy burial ground. You would think that there's more uh, mention of that. Yeah, there's only one other time that I think on the show we've talked about gypsies being buried, but it was in an actual regular cemetery. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. And how they well, would come up with it, it's 23 times more haunted. But, hey, so what does this place have going on there? Apparently, uh, the one quote that they have is, if you ever need to check out a book at Cy Kimmore Hall Library, bring a friend. We don't want to mop up any more pee stains from terrified students. <laughs> no. Well, I could not find any more about what goes on there, but apparently it's scarier than any building that is going to be called the most haunted building in America. And um, we have another building of a girl being murdered in a dorm, Maple Street Hall. It's the second oldest dorm on campus. Supposedly very harmless, but manifests several times. There's documentation. Her name is Brenda, and there's two versions of how she died. She was a young girl who died of a violent crime and died not far from her on-campus home at Maple Hall and chose to stay there. Or she discovers that she's pregnant and tries to hide her condition. She dies when giving birth in a hidden part of Maple Hall. So here we have another girl who died because she's pregnant. I mean, it happened a lot back then because Mm. to have children out of wedlock was not okay. And sometimes I always wonder, you know, you hear about it being suicide. But Mm -hmm. in our more modern era, when you're looking at a lot of these true crimes and a pregnant woman dies, sometimes because the man wants to get rid of the problem. So it does make you wonder if there really was a suicide or dying while giving birth going on here. One resident advisor, like she has two experiences that she has told about. She was checking on the dorm rooms. After she checked the rooms, she would turn off the lights and shut the door. She finished up and was doing something else when a telephone began to ring from one of the rooms. She finally found the room, and it was not hard to find. The door that she sure she shut before was wide open with the light turned on. And when she stepped into the room, the phone stopped ringing. Interesting. And then she had another experience on that floor, same floor months later. Two students came to her asking who was living in the suite next to them. After the advisor told them that that particular suite is empty, the girls then told her that every morning they would hear the shower going. How weird, because you know what they were thinking. They're like, you know, we keep hearing a shower over there, but and perhaps they've even knocked on the door to introduce themselves Mm because, you know, we're your next door neighbor. So you're thinking, mm-hmm. I've never seen anybody coming or going, but there's got to be somebody living there because the shower's turning on. Again, water. Mm-hmm. That common factor, water. And I don't think those showers are easy to turn on, especially modern showers now. You have to physically be able to turn the knob. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm thinking that if somebody's not living in a room, they're probably keeping it locked. So mm-hmm. there wouldn't be an opportunity for somebody to go in there and play a prank. Now, the other thing that I would love to know is you hear the water turn on. I'm assuming Mm -hmm. it turns off at some point. So 
Is this exactly. the ghost turning on and off the water or somebody going in there going, why is there water going in there? The only other thing that I'm thinking is these people aren't actually checking to see if there's water after the fact. Mm-hmm. So or may, maybe right. we're hearing something that's a residual audio kind of haunting where they're hearing water, but there's not actually anything mm-hmm. that's being turned on and off. That could be a possibility. Ellen, I want to thank you for suggesting these two universities to us and doing the research on this and and sharing those stories, because even though they may not be anything more than legend, they're certainly interesting Mm -hmm. to listen to. I'm really glad that I was I enjoyed researching this. I got to know more about the university that I went to and the neighboring university than I did when I during the years I was there. I had no idea about any of this. All right. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Do the spirits of former students and professors still haunt the campuses of UNT and TWU? Are these universities in Denton haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, there's some creepy stuff going on on those campuses, that's for sure. It seems like a lot of universities across this country have hauntings going on, and it seems like there's a lot of suicide. That's kind of sad. Yeah, I wonder if it's just like the added stress, you know, because a lot of kids feel under so much stress at university to succeed, to get the right grades. They might be majoring in something they don't really want to do because of parental pressure. On our next episode, we're going to be going to Maryland. We're going to do Point Lookout Lighthouse. Denise, we know how you love your lighthouses. I absolutely love lighthouses, so I'm super excited. I heard about this one from the Curioso podcast, and I was so intrigued because there were so many stories connected to this, so I'm really looking forward to digging into the history and hauntings. And it's a very unique-looking lighthouse, like some of the ones that we've looked at in the past, where it's not just your this tall cylindrical type of lighthouse. It's more like a house with a light on top of it. Oh, wow. Denise, on the last episode, I thanked our executive producers who've been giving to us for over a year now. And there were two names that I need to add to that list. Tracy Duhon and John Venezia. Thanks so much for your donations that have been going on for over a year now. That's very cool. Thank you all very, very much. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. What did you think of mom and dad's bumper there at the beginning? I loved it. A <laughs> couple of nuts, huh? They are. They ran out of the house and we haven't seen them since. So I, I, I'm not sure what happened there. Okay. And we got this email from B-E-T-S-C-G-E-E going back to the Imbolc episode. Leprosy was actually a big problem in the ancient world. There were very early monasteries during the Roman occupation and later in the Anglo-Saxon times where people with leprosy were cared for. Because it was contagious and because facial features and extremities were so damaged and distorted, they did not stay together. Archaeologists have found cemeteries in Britain where the skeletons demonstrate the clear signs of the destruction leprosy caused. They have actually traced the most common form of bacillus found in the UK to an individual in the 4th to 5th century, and they have determined that he grew up in Denmark, Scandinavia. And this is the same strain now found in the southern U.S., spread to humans by armadillos, of all things. It is treated with a 6 to 12-month course of antibiotics, but can have an incubation period of up to 20 years. So don't go petting any armadillos. And we have a lot of armadillos in Florida. People may not be aware of that, but we do. We even had one in our garage one time. I had to get the broom out and chase them out of there. 
Well, I thought that was a fascinating letter. Thank you so much because we were all asking, was leprosy a big issue back then? You know, what was going on with that? So that explains that a little bit further. So greatly appreciate that. Over on Instagram, we got a message from Thea MR1. Hi, Diane and Denise. Just wanted to tell you how much I enjoy your podcast. I stumbled upon it one evening when I was looking for stories about the Whaley House in San Diego, my hometown, and haven't stopped listening since. It's gotten me through many a traffic-filled afternoon commute home. I love how you provide a bit of history without being too scary, and I really enjoy the chat in between. Well, thank you so much for that. We greatly appreciate that. It's amazing how many people just stumble across us, Denise. I feel kind of like a rock in the road, tripping people up. We're a speed bump. Got that one. Ooh, got that one. (laughs) Ha ha. And then we had a couple comments on the website. One from Craig. Hello from far off Australia, Diane and Denise. I've recently discovered your podcast and am hooked, gradually working my way through them. Being a fellow taphophile, much of your content resonates with me. While I've never really been into things Wild West, as a result of several of your episodes, I find myself delving into the history of places such as Deadwood and Virginia City. There are many similar places down under, too. Keep up the interesting and worthwhile work. I'm staying tuned. So, and thank you, Craig, for that one. We'll have to, definitely, if you find anything similar to Virginia City or Deadwood from Australia, let us know. It would be fun to kind of do a kind of a comparison show of the Wild Wild West down under. And then we also heard from Frank. Love your podcast. Just wish the podcast were longer. Keep up the good work. I'm also listening to a podcast called Mysterious Circumstances. It's hosted by Justin, and I've really been enjoying it. It has a lot of mysterious circumstances they talk about on there, true crimes, weird happenings. And we've been conversing with each other back and forth on Twitter. And he had wanted to tell us that he really appreciated our episode on Embolk. As a pagan, it's nice to see a non-judgmental, informative podcast do an episode on it. So thank you. So you are very welcome, Justin. And I know that we had somebody in the Spooktacular crew ask about who else is pagan in here. And I don't know if she got any answers, and I can't remember who had asked the question. But uh, that's one of the reasons why we did the episode, because we know we have a lot of pagan uh, listeners out there. So we thought, well, this would be something nice for them. It was something you and I didn't know very much about. So Yeah, so it was just fun to find out somebody else's different belief system. It was, it was kind of cute because mom was like, well, that wasn't really up my alley. And dad goes, are they talking to a witch? <laughs> <laughs> that was cute. It was just like, and I'm like, yep, we are. Yep, dad, we were talking to a witch. So that was fun. And then we have a couple of reviews to share from iTunes. First one is from Merzpah. Four stars. Great concept. Too little substance. I'm binging on old episodes, so I'll update the rating if it changes. Great stories, but way too much side conversations. I'm okay with fast forwarding to a point, but fast forwarding a quarter of the episode is a bit much. And then Tony the Mechanic. Five stars. This show is awesome. Diana and Denise do a great job of keeping the interest of the audience. Love the different segments, especially our moment naughty. You couldn't structure a show any better than this. Add in top-notch hosts and you have a recipe for success. And that's from Jerry and Tracy over from Hillbilly Horror Stories. Well, thank you from fellow podcasters. Greatly appreciate that. We want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Jim Hoffman, Krista Klein, and Olivia Riggins. And we'd like to thank Jerry and Tracy of Hillbilly Horror Stories for your one-time donation. We also are going to be joined by them this weekend for an interview on a location in Lexington, Kentucky. That's all we're telling you right now, but you're going to love it. Yes, you will. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.